When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I'm your host, Kim. Unfortunately, mass shootings are a thing, even here in Canada. Uh, I'm actually very fascinated with incel groups, which have been responsible for a number of mass shootings here as well as elsewhere in the world. But today's story isn't about an incel, but it's a similar mindset where vengeance and feeling overly wronged by people in society turns to violence. If you're wondering, I do plan on doing an episode or two on incels, but my daughter is actually more a bit of an expert on them. She studied sociology and she's um, currently looking to pick a thesis and incels are a topic that she's actually done quite a bit of research on. I want to give her the opportunity to provide me with some of that research first so that I can speak a bit more knowledgeable about that subject. So stay tuned on that front. Today's story is the Concordia University Massacre. Concordia University was founded in 1974 when Loyola College and Sir George Williams Universities merged. And it's one of three English-speaking universities in Montreal and considered today by enrollment numbers to be one of the largest universities in Canada. There has recently been some law changes to um, French versus the English language in in Quebec. So that might change as far as that being an English-speaking university. The Sir George Williams University campus makes up the main campus. Loyola, one located about seven kilometers away, is a secondary campus. Concordia boasts one of the best engineering and computer science facilities in the world. And it was the first to be named after a woman when in 2008, Gina Cody donated $15 million to the facility and it was renamed the Gina Cody School of Engineering. It is still to this day the home of the Trotsky Bridge Building Competition in which students put their learning to work and build a one meter long bridge using only popsicle sticks, toothpicks, dental floss, and white glue. And now apparently 
a lot of award-winning people and people of note have gone there. But the only name that I recognized on the list was Will Arnett of Arrested Development fame, which says a lot more about me than it does about the university. Anyways, in the summer of 1992, the university facility had its hands full with one of their professors named Valerie Fabricant, who had begun a civil suit against his former department chair, Tom Sanker, and the dean of the engineering and computer sciences facilities, Srikanta Swamy. In, it was in April of that year regarding some work that he had published in a research papers that he didn't feel he had been properly credited for his work on. And Valerie was a bit of a character to say the least. In late 1979, 39-year-old Valerie Fabrican had emigrated from the USSR with his wife and was desperate for work. Tom Sanker, who was at the time the chair of the Medi- mechanical engineering department, hired him as a research assistant for a salary of $7,000 a year. He eventually became a professor of engineering and Valerie had told Tom that he had fled Minsk, Belarusia as a dis- dissident. In reality, he had fled because he'd been fired from his last job for making threats. Although I'm not sure you can just get into a new country on that basis. So losing his job was likely a catalyst for making the move to Canada. And he likely hid that information from Immigration Canada. It was the Montreal Gazette that flushed that information out. It didn't take too long before Valerie became a a bit of a problem child for the university. He was arrogant and belligerent and he loved, and I mean loved, writing demanding letters and accusing people of wronging him. When his father passed away and his inheritance was taking too long to get into his bank account, he actually wrote a letter to external affairs telling them to suspend further shipments of grain to the USSR until he got his money. Yeah, like in 1980, Canada's going to get into it with the USSR over some guy's inheritance. But despite being a bit of a pill, he was a good researcher. So in 1983, he was promoted to associate professor. And by 1985, he was one of three faculty members appointed to a new research center that was funded by the government of Quebec. Then he decided that it wasn't right that others were being named and credited on research papers that he had written. And he was also super petty about things with co-workers and would take, would take little arguments to extremes. One time when his office refused to pay for a new printer for him, he threatened to go to the media with accusations about some of the spending in his department. And just to sweeten his allegations, he would also out Tom for not contributing to a couple of published papers that his name was on. But despite this, he was rehired on a two-year contract. Oh, and I forgot to mention, he was so litigious that he would often tape his conversations with his co-workers. But someone at the university liked him despite his prickly nature, and the department head in 1990 thought he should be up for tenure. But there was someone that wasn't a fan. A woman named Rose Sheenan was a vice rector, which is like an elected board member of the university. Uh, but she was kind of new to her position and also a woman. So even though Rose had compiled a file on Valerie demonstrating his erratic and threatening behavior, including voicemails left on her personal answering machine, Valerie was given an additional two years on his contract and $60,000 a year. He continued his complaints and verbal assaults, asking for more academic freedoms and more grant money. So by October of 1991, the board had made the decision not to renew his contract again and no tenure. But this decision was overruled by the personnel committee, which at the time was like the equivalent of an HR department. 
They overruled this because somehow Valerie's personnel file didn't have any documents in it relating to his problematic behavior. There is suggestions made that it was a result of intentional tampering, but nothing was ever proven. So when somehow word got back to Valerie that his contract wasn't going to be renewed, he went on the warpath. Emails started flying from his office computer to his coworkers and the media regarding allegations of academic fraud. His reaching out to the media actually backfired a little bit when a former student came forward of rape allegations against him, but charges in that case were never formally filed. And it was around this time that he'd filed the lawsuit against Tom Sanker and Dean Srikantaswamy, in which he wanted their names removed from research papers from the 1980s. That case actually dragged on until November of 2007, when it was dismissed by the Quebec Superior Court as frivolous and unfounded. Two months after he filed the lawsuit, he got into an argument with another department chair, Sam Osman, over some courses that he was asked to teach, and for some reason that no one found alarming, he demanded that Sam's secretary, Elizabeth Horwood, sign his application as a character witness for a permit for him to carry a concealed weapon, which she very wisely refused to do and reported the incident to the acting rector, Patrick Keneff, who instead of suspending him without pay as he could have, he discussed talks with the boards over giving him early retirement with full pay as a way of getting rid of him for good. Valerie was only 52 at this time and it would have been a pretty sweet deal, but he demanded 13 years of full salary, so negotiations kind of died after that. He did, however, manage to convince his neighbor to sign the character witness section of the application. He was also reported to have told more than one person, I know how people get what they want. They shoot a lot of people. That summer, while the lawsuit was going on, he was facing contempt charges based on his behavior in the courtroom and towards the judge in the case. The judge had also threatened to dismiss the lawsuit altogether because he was intimidating and harassing both Tom Sanker and Srikanta Swami. By August 21st, the lawyers for Concordia told him that he was at risk of losing his job. He was also to answer the contempt charges on August 25th. Now, contempt of court can just be a fine, but it can also be jail time. And when Valerie decides to be contemptuous, he goes all in. So he was probably going to get some jail time. Just after 2.30 on Monday, August 24th, Valerie arrived at work at the Henry F. Hall building carrying his briefcase. But rather than research papers and lessons, his briefcase carried a five-round snub-nosed 38 Smith & Wesson, a German-made Meb semi-automatic pistol, and an Argentinian Bursa, and a whole schwack of bullets. When the elevator doors opened for him on the ninth floor of the hall building in the Loyola campus, he walked down the hall looking for the dean, Srikanta Swami, and his fairly new nemesis, Sam Osman, the department chair. But fortunately for them, neither of them were in at the time. So he went and headed for his own office. But he was barred by Michael Hogben, the president of the faculty association. Michael was armed with a letter barring him from the offices, which said that his access was restricted because his behavior was causing people who worked there considerable distress. But his letter was no match for a 38 Smith and Wesson, and Valerie discharged three shots into Michael, killing him almost instantly. Another professor, Jan Saber, heard the shots and ran out to Valerie, who walked towards him and shot him twice. 
He then moved on to shoot Elizabeth Horwood, the one that had refused to sign his gun permit application. She was shot in the thigh, but thankfully survived. Elizabeth managed to get to her office phone and called Concordia's security office. Virginia Forster answered the call, and of course, of course it was, her first day on the job as sergeant. I mean, she had worked as a security guard before, but she had just been promoted to sergeant. When she picked up the call, expecting to hear about a homeless guy or something too close to the back doors, Elizabeth shouted into her ear, He shot me, he shot me, Professor Fabricant, help me, help me. She immediately tried to call 911 but couldn't connect through. So she ran to a payphone and tried again but still couldn't connect. Because, as it turns out, the 911 service had already been flooded with calls from students and teachers stuck inside the building. So then she called the local police station and she said, quote, I just calmly but forcefully spit out what was going on. And the police came from every direction, including the wrong way down to Mason View Boulevard. It was like a movie. It really was. Valerie continued to walk down the hall of the ninth floor shooting Phobos Sayogas, the electrical and computer engineering head, twice, who was talking with another professor, Otto Schwelb. He scuffled with Otto, who managed to get one of his guns from him, but he got away from his grasp and was able to get back to Sam Osman's office, where Matthew Douglas was waiting for him. Matthew, seeing the gun, tried to reason with Valerie, but he shot him four times in the head. He died where he laid crumpled on the ground by Osman's desk. Michael was a civil engineering professor and had been a good friend of Sam's. While all this was going on, George Abdu, who was an associate engineering professor who had only been there for a year, was in his office with a PhD student he was mentoring when he heard what he knew was a gunshot. He told his student to leave, which he did, and then he stepped out into the office area to see his office door scratched and dented with bullet casings scattered on the floor and Elizabeth Horwood bleeding from the leg. He ran over to her, but she screamed, where's the other secretary? And she managed to run out of the office, leaving George and a security guard, Daniel Martin, blinking in disbelief. Before George and Daniel could process what was happening and flee, Valerie returned and pointed his gun at them and told them not to move. Valerie then picked up the phone, dialed 911 and demanded a TV reporter to whom he could aim his long list of grievances at. SWAT team officers arrived and Virginia had to take them up the ninth floor in the freight elevator. She says, I turned to the man next to me. I don't know what his rank was. I told him, you know, I'm not armed, right? He said, just stay behind me. Do exactly what I do. If he shoots, he will shoot me first. The elevator doors opened and out we went. We were jumping over bodies on the ground. That never leaves you ever. George told the Concordian years later that he remembered looking at the clock on the wall when the SWAT team stood outside the door. They knew that there were hostages at that point, so they were just assessing. The time said it was 4.15, and for some reason, all he could think of was that his babysitter had told him that if he wasn't there by four, she was going to leave his boys who were four and six out on the street. But George saw his opportunity when Valerie took his finger off the trigger of the gun that he was pointing at them to hand the phone to Daniel. George kicked the gun out of Valerie's hands like a total badass. I ran toward the gun and I lay down on it. When I looked back, the security guard dropped the phone and he went and held his arms. I went back to him and I was kind of hysteric asking, why are you doing all this? And the security guard was screaming, open the door. George then flew open the office door immediately faced with SWAT members and realized that he was still holding the gun. George threw the gun down and dropped to the ground and was tackled and handcuffed, mistaking him for the shooter. 
Valerie was still stunned by all the commotion and stood silently while officers handcuffed and arrested him. When they asked him later in court why he hadn't shot George, he said, I didn't kill him because he was not afraid of death. Jan Saber died of his wounds the next day and Fovos of his almost a month later. Jan, Fovos, Michael, Matthew, Daniel, George, and Elizabeth were never previously involved in any of his grievances. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I will be right back after these brief messages. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, I wasn't able, sadly, to find much information on the victims of the shooting. I know that Jan Saber was a 46-year-old married associate professor of mechanical engineering Uh, He had recently been offered a volunteer position to help communal officials find jobs in engineering for newly arrived Russian Jewish immigrants and also had been given an award for outstanding contribution to student life. Michael Hogbin was a dedicated environmentalist. He had been with Concordia University since 1966 and was due to retire the next year. Virginia Forster went back into security work for the U.S. Soccer Club. She told the Montreal Gazette, I'm the only one stupid enough to go back into security. It becomes part of your life. If I walk into the stadium, the first thing I do is look for the exits. It's always with you. George Abdu was given a ride to his babysitter's house and his boys were there safe and sound. He collapsed in shock around 8 p.m. that night and still suffers PTSD from the events of that day. Valerie, of course, went on trial on March 7th, 1993 for seven counts in total, four counts of first degree murder, one of attempted murder and two for forcible confinement. And as most people that think they are smarter than everyone else does, he fired his lawyers and insisted on defending himself, turning the entire court process into a complete circus. He actually went through 10 lawyers during his court proceedings. Now, I I actually managed to track down some of the transcripts of his trial. I'm not going to read them all word for word, but they give you a pretty good idea of what was going on during this trial. And it was, let's just say, messy. After a couple of days of Valerie representing himself, Justice Fraser Martin, realizing he was working with someone with some issues, particularly because his defense was one of self-defense because his co-workers were all trying to give him a heart attack and compared his treatment to orphans at Mount Cashel, Martin wanted him assessed to make sure he was actually fit for trial and although found to be severely paranoid and hostile, he was. But Valerie responded to this decision counter-arguing that psychology has no scientific basis and proves nothing. The Crown ended their case on May 17th and that is when Louis Bellanu was appointed by Justice Martin as an amicus curiae, which is basically just someone that can offer legal advice, but isn't officially a party to the legal proceedings. And between May 17th and July 30th, Valerie called 75 different witnesses, asking rambling questions, berating them, belittling them, and even insulting Justice Martin in the process. Part of his opening statement addressed to the jury was, 
quote, it will be up to you to determine the degree of criminal responsibility of mind to those actions. This is the main purpose of this defense. We can say a thousand times that we need stricter gun laws, that we need this, that we need that. It will not change anything because the main reason for violence is injustice in all cases or almost all cases. Violence is a result of perception of injustice. And if we really want to curb violence, we have to address the question of injustice. Valerie's defense hinged on provocation, basically that he was provoked to violence by not getting the proper credit on research papers and whatnot, and stated that he was dealing with criminals, and when you're dealing with criminals, you have no choice but to take justice into your own hands. His only intent being to threaten Hogbin sufficiently that he would convey to all the other bandits that they would leave him alone. He said that he really only wanted to scare people. And if he had really intended to kill anyone, then, quote, why would he leave a stock of ammunition in his office as he went on a shooting spree? They always talk in the third person when they represent themselves. So stupid. Rather than carry it with him. And why would he take the two minutes walking slowly to cross the hall to go from shooting Michael Hogbin to Jan Saber? If it was planned, would he not have walked quickly? The bullet casings from in the office where Elizabeth was shot, it might have been someone else's, but which the police dog dug out from underneath by removing a portion of the floor of the skirting. See, Valerie was the victim here, and he decided that he was suffering from psychologically battered person syndrome. One of his first witnesses he called for his own defense was Srikanka Swami, and this is just some of the judge's ex exchange with Valerie on this. So the judge says to him, you have until this afternoon to finish with this witness. I suggest you get on with it. You've been here four days. To which Valerie says, about the afternoon, I have another jurisprudence here, which it says, if I can read it to you, and if it says there is no way a judge can put a limit on as long as there are pertinent questions to interrogation as long as there are pertinent questions. And I'm not certain there are pertinent questions. Well, as soon as they're not pertinent, then you do it. And I am satisfied that you are not moving with the dispatch with which you can move. And that is that. And it's been the same with every witness. You have till this afternoon, you have known Mr. Swami is leaving. You have known that Mr. Swami is not available tomorrow. And you have known that for two weeks. I advised you on several occasions that he responds much longer than necessary and he doesn't respond to questions. I would have finished a long time ago. If you are, if you have questions to put to him, I suggest you get on with it. I have questions, but I suggest you stop abusing the law. You ignore all the jurisprudence which I quote to you. You are above the law and this is no good. Sit down. No. Call your next witness. Whatever I do, you cannot excuse the witness. Call your next witness. You were warned yesterday and you've been warned today and you continue arguing. You refuse to put your questions. That's it. You behave like a little low crook. Pardon? Little low crook. Can you show any reason why you should not be held in contempt for that last statement? Contempt of who? Contempt of court. You are not the court. To which the judge tells him, sit down. Throughout this trial, you have elected to defend yourself. That, of course, is your right. That makes it incumbent upon me, unfortunately, to have a number of exchanges with you, which I would not ordinarily have. I have thrown no insults at you. When you call me a little low crook, you express contempt not only for me, but for the whole system, which, whether you like it or not in this country, we happen to be proud of. 
It may be that you sit there or stand there and thumb your nose at contempt citations, and when you do, of course, the weakness of the system is that you're able to do it with impunity, that the strength of the system is that it progresses. Your trial will go on, and at the end, whatever it is, you will be tried, and the jury will decide what the jury has to decide. That is why when you call me a little low crook, not only am I only not personally obliged to accept that sort of behavior on your part, I'm obliged to use the authority which I have to punish that. So we'll go on. We will go on. If necessary, time limits will be imposed depending on the situation and the case will move ahead. As things stand at the moment, I find you guilty of contempt of court. I told you that in the 10 years that I've been here, I've never had an occasion to pronounce one's judgment in contempt of court against anyone until this trial began. I find you guilty of contempt of court, and for that last contempt, I sentence you to six months' imprisonments to be served consecutively to the sentences which you already served. I can tell you that if an incident such as this morning repeats itself, the same approach will be adopted and your trial will continue, and you will get to the end whether you like it or not, with you or in spite of you. Now, some of the other admonishments the judge had to give were... I intervened because you insist on cross-examining your own witness, which you may not do. Every time you argue with me since the beginning of this trial, I have been insulted on a daily basis. You have committed contempt of court on a regular and ongoing basis, and in the teeth of the fact that the judge has the right to control and direct the trial. What options do I have? Argument is inadmissible. You persist in arguing. For the first time in almost 10 years here, you were the first person that I've ever had to cite for contempt. Now, I don't care if that tells you something, but it certainly tells me something. First time in 10 years, never done it before, never had to. I will not live with this sort of thing. I will not put up with it from you any longer. You are conducting your own defense. That is the situation you are in. You merited being removed from the courtroom yesterday afternoon, yet I left with a practical problem. How do I run your trial with you removed from the courtroom, particularly at the stage of your defense? So there is no solace for me there. There is no solace for me in gagging you. There is no solace for me in finding you in contempt because you thumb your nose at all rulings that I make. You make it virtually impossible. Since the beginning of this trial, you had nothing but argument, disrespect, rudeness from you. It's coming to an end. If there is one more incident, one more incident, this trial will end and you will go straight out through that door. This trial will end. The jury will begin their instructions. And that is that you will follow the directions of this court word for word closely. If you don't like what they are, you can go and complain to the court of appeal, but I'm not putting up with this kind of treatment. I've been subjected to by you any longer. The very next morning, Valerie addressed the jury saying, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muppet Show, which sparked another brouhaha with the judge and another contempt of court order, and the rambling question and belligerence continued. Would you call your next witness? Otherwise, what? Will you release the witness? Otherwise, I will release the witness. You have no right to do that. The witness is here. I'm not going to argue with you anymore. I've ruled. That lining of questioning is out of order. Well, you know very well this is not my witness, and if I disclose what I'm aiming at, the witness would know and definitely will adjust his answer. Last time, now if you persist in arguing, I'll end the interrogation of this witness. Well, to the point, I would like to tell you, you do not scare me. I couldn't care less. If you want to do another illegal thing, do it, all right, and never again try to scare me. Next witness. Well, I think it's about time to repeat again, you are a little low crook. 
to which the judge said, okay, that's it. You're out of order. Remove him from the courtroom. I will decide between now and 12 o'clock what my next step's going to be. But it is obviously impossible to proceed with this trial in the manner in which you're behaving yourself. Your behavior has become totally disruptive. Out now. We'll adjourn till 12 o'clock, ladies and gentlemen. Once back in order, Justice Martin gave the jury his decision on what he was going to do. Ladies and gentlemen, in view of the situation we find ourselves, I have decided that the time has come to terminate the defense. I think that I owe you an explanation as to why I've come to that decision and the explanation will be brief. The parties have a duty to respect the judge's rulings because, as I've said to you before, if the judge errs along the way, that is why an appeal procedure which is in place in order to undo any injustice which might result. Systematically, it has become more and more difficult to see these basic rules respected. The right to a full answer in defense is not unlimited. One cannot simply throw themselves before the high altar of the Charter of Rights and expect by invoking it to be able to behave as one wishes, casting aside all of the rules which apply to the orderly running of a Canadian court. And unless proceedings can devolve in a calm atmosphere, then obviously the rules are being abused somewhere. I've decided that this trial cannot usefully proceed any further and that the time has come simply to put an end to the defense evidence. Um, So basically what he did, what he did decide to do was just close the defense. So um, Valerie couldn't bring any more witnesses. He couldn't, he could no longer defend himself. Like it was basically like case closed. And after that whole circus was finally ended by Justice Martin, the jury found him guilty of all seven counts on August 11th, 1993, to which Martin got the last word in saying, Today, your credentials are firmly established as a vicious murderer, a wretched man puffed up and transformed by the power of the gun into an artificial giant. He, of course, appealed, um, not just once, but a gabillion times, filing motion after motion. He's filed so many that he's actually been deemed a vexatious litigant by the courts, uh, meaning that he isn't allowed any longer to bring anything to the court unless he has specific permission to do so. After the violence, Concordia University commissioned two independent inquiries to investigate how this had all happened. The first was published in April of 1994, headed by the former president of York University and found in part, we have confirmed the validity of a number of Dr. Fabricant's more specific allegations about financial mismanagement and questions about scholarship practices such as article attribution. Fabricant's allegations were not motivated by concern for the public good, however. Instead, they were the ultimate revenge of a desperate man who had already tried blackmail and threats against officials. The second, by the former VP of the University of Ottawa, identified problems common to university environments where disruptive behavior has sometimes been excused under the mantle of academic freedom because many of the academics involved had little experience as managers. Um, He noted that often academic administrators were not comfortable as managers and needed additional training. So his report included recommendations for how the university could improve its internal communication and management of academics and departments. Both reports found some issues and recommended changes in how the university handled matters academic, um, disciplinary, and financial, but also as well as some security processes. 
Rose Sheenan, the one that had wanted him fired, uh, the vice rector, she said that the incident seriously damaged the soul of this university. I don't think any of us will ever be the same again. And Charles Nero, who was the then co-president of the Concordia Student Association, said making this university into a fortress will not mend the fabric of this community, nor will it make it safe, comfortable place to learn and work. Uh, nor will it undo the events of August 24th. Vice Rector Rose Sheenan and Patrick Kenneth were eventually replaced, and Tom Sanker and Srikantas um, Swami left the university after the shootings. Valerie applied for early parole in 2008. The petition was denied, the judge saying, the dangerousness of the petitioner in the controlled environment of a penitentiary cannot be compared um, were he to be liberated. The death of four people is testimony to how the petitioner resolves conflicts when in society. Equally worrisome is that the groups of people he has entered into conflicts with over the last 15 years has expanded. It is no longer limited to work colleagues, but now includes correctional officials, doctors, and justice system participants. One of his motions was granted in 2014 when he was given a second winter jacket. In 2015, he asked, for, he asked for access to a computer. That was denied. Uh, he wanted temporary leave to visit his family. That was also denied. In 2016, he was denied day parole passes. In 2019, he filed a lawsuit against Archambault Prison, uh, which is where he calls home over kosher food. In his statement of claim against Correctional Service Canada, Valerie wrote that he keeps kosher in prison and stopped getting served soup. Until December of 2017, he said that he was served kosher soup every day. He stopped getting kosher soup at that time while other inmates continued to get soup regularly. He also complained that in August of 2019, the prison system changed its kosher food supplier and the new food is either unappetizing to the point of being inedible or the portions are much smaller than the non-kosher dishes served at to non-Jewish inmates. Um, and less than Canadian prison portion guidelines. I believe that he lost that suit. In December 2020, he came up for a parole hearing that was denied as well. The parole board's noting that after 28 years since he's been in prison, he does not recognize that he hurt innocent people and that his release would pose a risk to society. Since the massacre, four large granite study tables were placed in the foyer of the hall building as a memorial with a wall plaque that commemorates the event. The university joined the Coalition for Gun Control and gathered about 200,000 signatures for a petition calling for tougher national gun laws and to ban the private ownership of handguns in Canada. And in 1995, the university adopted the Code of Rights of Responsibilities and named an advisor on that code. It set out standards of conduct for all members of the university. And that was the Concordia University Massacre. I will be back again next week with another case. As always, thank you so much for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.